know many of you all have been involved in the past with Operation Christmas Child, putting together uh, Christmas boxes, sending overseas. So I was listening to uh, Franklin Graham this week speak. He's talking about the fact that one of these boxes made its way to Kosovo into the hands of an orphan. And the worker who was there um, presented the box as a Christmas present to this little child. And the child said, I don't want the box. <laughs> I guess that's a problem. You're presenting a box. The child doesn't want one. And said, oh, honey, let's open up the box and see what's inside. And the child says, I don't want a box. I want a parent. Imagine, you know, a refugee camp not having parents living in very substandard conditions. So they open up the box, and there's inside, there's presents. There's also a letter from America, from a couple living in South Carolina. They have to be childless. The child wrote back, and immediately the couple wrote the the child and said, "Um, we'd like to get to know you. And the short of the story is six months later, the couple came from here to there to adopt that little child. The love of God. The amazing love of God. We begin our uh, third series of the year, um, God's Power to Deliver the Cross. We have seen God's power to deliver us from idols out of the book of Judges in the month of January. In the month of February, we were um, witnessing God's power to deliver us from debt. The church debt is currently just under $1.6 million. That's $845,000 down from just 10 months ago. And that gives me great encouragement. Families and our individuals in our church are also not incurring unnecessary debt and uh, digging themselves out of consumer debt. And people are signing up for Financial Peace University, and it begins this Wednesday. Now, a couple that went through last time has offered to sponsor. So if you have a financial need, we'll help you out. We would love for you to come to Financial Peace University beginning this Wednesday night down in room 114. We always come to the cross sort of wounded and broken. And we find there Jesus, who also was broken, who identifies with our brokenness. And we find our healing at the cross. And we are mended by his wounds, for by his wounds we are healed. For the next month, we're going to focus and linger at the cross. We're going to look at the cross from many different angles. And I will tell you, whatever angle you look at, the cross is beautiful. So let's begin 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. The centrality of the cross. Paul writing said, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is a resolution? A resolution is to make a decision, to make up your mind about a matter. And then once you've made that decision, to determine your course of action. Paul made a resolution in his heart to focus his attention on one matter. He made a resolution of his soul to focus his energy upon one person. You see, Paul had come to the city of Corinth, a city known for its excesses and indulgences. And he came with a resolution in his heart to preach Jesus and him crucified. He had just come from the town of Athens, a philosophical intellectual center. There were Epicurean, Stoic philosophers whom Paul had reasoned with. And he had talked about the creation, about the judgment, about accountability, but he hadn't spoken about the cross. And when he left the town of Athens, they sneered and scoffed at him. So when Paul came to town, he came to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He hadn't come to Corinth to begin a philosophy class. He knew that human philosophy would never get people to heaven. 
He didn't come to Corinth to match rhetoric with the rhetoricians. He knew he couldn't spin his words to get people into heaven. He came with a holy resolve. He came with a holy mindset. He came to town with a mission. Paul centered himself on the cross, on the person of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ, born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus Christ, born in a little town of Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, born in the family of Joseph, the carpenter. Jesus Christ, born King of the Jews. Jesus Christ, baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus Christ, anointed of God and filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ, the preacher of the good news. Jesus Christ, the lover of the forgotten, the forsaken. Jesus Christ, the healer of the broken ones. Jesus Christ, the one who forgives us of our sins. Jesus Christ, scourged by the Roman soldiers. Jesus Christ, condemned by Pontius Pilate. Jesus Christ, pierced for our transgressions. Jesus Christ, crushed for our iniquities. Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, he came to town with nothing else on his mind than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He made a resolution inside himself that this was what he's going to be all about, the centrality of the cross. But you say, Pastor, what was the message of the cross? He said these words, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To some, the message of the cross is like foolishness. To them that are perishing, the message of the cross does not make sense. That God himself would leave heaven and make the long journey down to earth. Imagine God at the top of the staircase, making that long journey down the winding staircase down to heaven, down to earth. It doesn't make sense. He would leave his lofty position and humble himself and enter humanity. It seems ludicrous to those who are perishing, to those who are filled with pride, that God would humble himself because humility to them was not a virtue. It doesn't make sense that God was rich and he became poor. It seems ridiculous to them that are perishing that God, who is very wealthy, would make himself poor. To them who are perishing, their God is their money. That God would make himself poor, that he would divest himself of his wealth to make others wealthy. We should make note of how poor Jesus was. His parents tried to give him a room to be born at the inn, but they had to borrow a manger. And a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus would always say, follow me. The disciples heard the call of Jesus, and they followed him and left everything behind. And there was a man who said, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Now, perhaps the man thought Jesus was staying at the Hilton or the Marriott. He didn't know exactly where Jesus was staying. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Perhaps that's why Jesus has compassion upon the children of our world that have nowhere to lay their head. There's children in Haiti right now with nowhere to lay their head. There's children in Ethiopia with no place to lie down. There's children in Mozambique with no place to lay their head. And Jesus had to borrow an upper room to teach his disciples about servanthood. To them that are perishing, servanthood seems like foolishness. 
If he was God, why didn't he demand others serve him? That is the attitude of them that are perishing, coveting the high position, using their power for their own advantage, their power to get benefits. Jesus had to borrow a cross to be crucified on. To them that are perishing, they don't understand the love behind the cross. You see, criminals were put on the cross, but Jesus had done nothing wrong. The message of the cross is offensive to them that are perishing because to get saved, you have to humble yourself. To get saved, you have to lose your pride. You cannot enter the kingdom of God with your pride, and you cannot live the Christian life without humility. There's great humility involved with the cross. To get saved, you have to admit you don't have it all together. To get saved, you have to confess, I am a sinner. To get saved, you have to say, God, I am sorry about my sins. To get saved, you have to repent, which means to change your mind about your sin, to change the direction of your life. To get saved, you have to believe that Jesus took your place. And to get saved, you have to receive him. It's not enough just to hear about him. You have to receive him and believe. The message of the cross leaves me with nothing to boast about in myself. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. But to those being saved, they're understanding the power of God. Salvation points to the past, I have been saved. And it points to the present, that I am being saved. To those being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. The power of God to break the power of sin in your life. The power of God to forgive all your transgressions. The power of God to extend forgiveness to those who've trespassed against you. The power of God to break free from your past. The power of God to dismantle your false identity. And the power of God to step forth into your new identity as God's beloved one, his loved child. But you say, you don't know what I've done, Pastor. You're right, I don't. But God does. But listen to God. God says, come. Let's reason together. Let's dialogue with each other. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white like snow. You know about snow, right? You've been living a little bit of snow? Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll become white like the snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Some of you listening here know the power of God because you're being saved. But some of you don't. There are only two kinds of people in this world, not the rich and the poor, not the Americans and the others. (laughs) Two kinds of people, those being saved and those perishing, those who know the power of God and those who don't. The first person I ever saw get saved was a man by the name of Selden Dar. Selden was a good man. He was a religious man. You might have seen Selden in a place like this. He came to church often, but he didn't know the Lord. And it was a Sunday night about 10 o'clock, and he had a surgery the next morning, a brain surgery. He had a brain tumor. 
And I walked into his room, and he said to me, tell me how to get saved. And I said, I love the question. He said, I've, I've got this brain tumor, and I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to make it through, but I've got surgery tomorrow morning. Can you show me how to get saved? And about an hour after he asked the question, with tears streaming down his face, Sel- Selden was inviting Jesus Christ into his life. And it just lit a match in this man's life. He would walk after he went through the surgery. He, he made it through. He was healed. And he would walk the corridors of the hospital saying, do you know the power of God? Do you know the power of prayer? Now, I discipled Selden for a little while. And Selden, last I knew of him, had 150 people he had brought to the Savior. He was an amazing man of God once he got healed. What I'm telling you is there is tremendous power in the cross. Lives get changed at the cross. Paul would then go on to say in the book of Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 9, do you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Did you know that? That the wicked, the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be mocked. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the male prostitutes. Now, Chris, my son, while he was a student in college, would leave on Saturday night after their studies were done and go downtown Chicago. And there they would minister to the male prostitutes. There were these young men on the street, 18, 20 years old, many of them very well-dressed, beautiful hair, but had become male prostitutes. They were offering them food and a safe house to go to. And many of them couldn't look face-to-face because of the guilt and shame in their life. They were in the church at Corinth, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's where some of you were. You see, we can find ourselves on that list. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. The sexually immoral refers to those who are having sex before marriage. Corinth was a sexually promiscuous city. There was a temple to Epaphrodite and the priestesses that would go out into the streets and bargain with the people and then give themselves away sexually. There's plenty of sexual immorality also in America. The idolaters refer to those who worship the false gods and bow down to their images. Isaiah 44 talks about the fact, why do you take a tree and chop it in half? And with one half of the tree, you warm yourself, you make your bread, but the other half of the tree, you carve an idol and bow down to it and say, save me. There were idolaters then, there are idolaters now. And adulterers speaks of those who break their marriage vows. God considers marriage to be very holy and sacred. And there were then, as well as now, those breaking their marriage vows. The male prostitutes, the homosexual offenders, was very rampant in that day. It's spoken of at least 14 of the last 15 emperors of Rome were homosexual, including Nero. The thieves were those who were breaking inside people's homes. The drunkards were those who were drinking to excess. The swindlers were taking unfair advantage of others. And he's saying, such were some of you. The Corinthian church had 
ex-sexually immoral people, ex-homosexuals, ex-adulteresses, ex-thieves. The great truth of Christianity is no no person has sinned too deeply to be saved. No person has sinned so long so as not to be saved. He says, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified. It makes no difference what you were before you were saved because God can save a sinner from any or all sin. Paul said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and then adds, and I was the worst of them all. It makes a huge difference, though, what you become after you are saved. He is saying there's a lifestyle corresponding to being cleansed and sanctified and justified. Being washed speaks of the new life, of being cleansed from within. It's not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved you by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God is able to wash away your past, wash away your sin. And then sanctification. Sanctification speaks of a new behavior, of God setting a believer apart, setting them apart. Formerly your vessel was polluted, but now God has sanctified you by his spirit, enabling you to live a righteous life. In my office, I have a special coffee cup. That coffee cup is sanctified to me. It is my vessel. It's been set apart to me. If someone were to grab that coffee cup, I would say, what are you doing? That's my coffee cup. And then justified. Justified speaks of a new standing with God. We are washed and clothed with God's righteousness. You see, a transformed life should produce a transformed change. Some of them were slipping back into their old lifestyle, and God saved them from all that. Casual sex, intimacy outside of marriage, is indulging the flesh, feeding the appetites of the flesh. It is self-indulgent and self-destructive. God himself is not anti-sex. Dismiss any notion that God is against affection and against intercourse. After all, God developed the whole package. Sex is God's idea. From God's perspective, sex between a husband and wife is holy. Sex is a holy gift to be open in a special place at a special time. The special place is marriage. The special time is with your marriage partner. We live in a me-centered culture where it's all about me. I get to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, as long as it hurts nobody. You have to understand that sex before a marriage, sex outside of marriage, destroys the soul. Your body and your soul are connected together. You cannot say, I will do this as long as nobody gets hurt, because it will hurt you and hurt your partner. But God's plan nourishes the soul. Consider God's plan. Two of his children, a man and a woman, make a covenant to live together. They disable the ejector seat. They burn the bridge back to mama's house. (laughs) And they fall in love with each other. Beneath this canopy of God's blessing, encircled by a tall fence of fidelity, 
they love each other. They resolve their differences. They're there in the morning when they wake up. They're there at the end of life when the wrinkles come. And gone is the guilt. And gone is the undisciplined lust. God wants to deliver you from that lifestyle. He wants to deliver you from sin. So what's the motivation behind the cross? 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ compels us. It's the love of Christ that motivates us. Here in his love, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's the tender, affectionate love of God that motivates us, that compels us, that drives us forward. God has moved in our direction with his love. And though we did not deserve this kind of love, we have received this love. And this is the kind of love we have received, a very sacrificial kind of love. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. Now you might think that since one has died for all, the rest don't have to die. But the scripture says, convinced that one died, Jesus died for all, therefore all died. What happened? Adam, our head, our representative, sinned. And therefore, sin spread to all men. You are in the presence of sinners. Like a father who catches a virus and spreads it to his entire family, so it is spread to the entire human family. Like somebody who's drunk the poison in the river, we've all drunk the poison. And sin brings its own condemnation. But the second Adam, his name is Jesus Christ, the head of the church, was our representative when he also died. The death he died on the cross was sufficient since he died for all mankind. Therefore, one died for all, therefore all died. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all sin. And that gives us a brand new motivation now to live. Verse 15. For he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again from the dead. You see, we no longer are thinking only of ourselves, thinking, unse- thinking selfishly. We begin now to think unselfishly about somebody else. We're no longer thinking of our own driveway when the snow is piled to the heavens. We begin to think about our neighbor. And once we get out with our four-wheel drive, we begin thinking about taking someone to the hospital. Our moms with busy lives, they barely have enough time to cook for their own families, thinking about somebody else and their family and delivering a meal. And today, at this very place at 1230, we're having an H1N1 clinic. Now, many here have had the vaccination, but those in our ethnic churches don't know how to get the vaccination and can't afford a vaccination. So we're going to offer this free of charge to them. You see, he died for all that we who live should no longer live for ourselves. Four of our girls are signed up to work at Waverly, showing love to these little children. Families from our church are traveling to places like Philippines and China to adopt children. That we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. An embodiment of this love to me and to our congregation has been my friend Alec Hale. He's going to come and share now this love that's been experienced within his community, within his small group. Come on, Alec, and share. Thank you, Art. You're welcome.
Good morning. I have trouble picking out clothes that match, which is why you'll often see me dressed uh, exactly like this. I'll have a solid top on, and I'll have a white t-shirt, and I'll have khaki pants because I know they work, and I like the way they look. But if I want to mix it up, I have to do something different. And I go into my closet, and I pick out two or three shirts that I like, and I pick out two or three pairs of pants that I think will go with them. And then I call Felicia, or I call the girls, and they come, and they shake their heads, or they go, yeah, this one will go with that one, or that one with this one. And I pick the ones, and they help me get dressed for the morning and for the day. I need assistance in this simple and daily task, and God has provided me a stylish wife and loving daughters. Let me read you um, from Colossians 3. I want to read Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. This was the first verse. We had a theme verse uh, for our first young married group, and we met six years ago, and the very first thing we did was read this verse. Uh, Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts for as members of one body you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it all as representatives of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The truth is, we need others to help us if we are to be clothed in love. Six years ago, Felicia and I and Mike and Margie Brewbreaker and David and Aaron O'Hara started a small group Bible study for young married couples. And we've met just about every two weeks since then. And we study either uh, books of the Bible or themes of the Bible. And we talk and sing and pray and eat and serve together. Six years ago, we began to open our lives to each other. And when I look back over those years, I wanted to share with you just a couple of the pictures, a couple of the experiences that rise to the top for me and kind of explain or demonstrate or illustrate um, the lives we've come to share. Maybe the very most important one to me is, uh, I don't know if you know David and Aaron O'Hara, they have two children, Isaac and Eva. And I met those two children the first day, the day they were born in the hospital. And I got to go to the hospital, and I can recall vividly holding each of them and bringing them up close to my face. And I don't know if you've ever smelled a, a new child, but it's a fragrance full of hope and potential. It is one of the most wonderful things in the world. And as I held them, those of us in the group, Aaron in the bed and family members around, we prayed for these kids. Uh, I asked God's rich blessing upon them, that their lives would be after him. It's one of the richest moments of my life. And then I've got to be with those kids, and we babysit them. They've been in our home when David and Aaron go away for weekends or this Saturday. They come and stay with us. And when I saw, just last weekend, when I saw Isaac in the hallway, we're going down the hallway to the children's thing. He always says the first three words to me. Hello, Mr. Alec. And then he tells me some concern of his on that day, or most often he tells me uh, in detail, in specific detail, about the last time he and I were together, some little fact that he's remembered. He has amazing memory, that boy. 
And I have really come to love both he and Isa. Let me tell you a story of another child in our, our, uh, our group. Uh, Josiah and Aline Tindor have two boys, Sam and Caleb. And I don't know if you've seen Josiah lead worship. He leads worship here, and Caleb will often be up with him. Caleb is uh, between two and three years old. My boys would be on the drums if they were up here, and they would be climbing on the drums. And Caleb stands over here beside his dad. Have you, have you had the opportunity to watch him? It's the most wonderful thing to see him smile and lift up and look at his dad, and he stays rooted. Well, so does his dad, but his dad's standing here, and his son is just there rooted and worshipful. And it's one of the most beautiful things as well to see his dad mirror what true worship is to a kid of this age and for his mom and dad, for Lean and Josiah, to encourage that obvious uh, gift in that child to worship God. Uh, it's a joy for me to see Josiah model fathership and it wears off on me, I hope, in the way I father my own kids. My children are now old enough to go to the different homes of the young families and babysit for their children. And my children have become very capable at caring and loving for these little kids. And in doing so, my older goal, girls get to spend time on the drive back and forth with Charity Haynes and Elizabeth Enriquez and Aline Tindor and Erin O'Hara. And these wonderful women build into my daughters. And for the half-hour trip that they share how to be a godly wife and how to be a mother and how to build into the lives of others, and my children soak it in. In our small group, we help each other out whenever we're in need. Jeff Haynes, another good friend in that group, is a physician's assistant at Frederick Memorial here, and he's also a gentleman farmer. He has two donkeys who you may have met. They have starred in a couple of our church productions and have come back and forth. Well, several months ago, one of them got a crack in, in his hoof. Uh, I am a former large animal veterinarian. I'm a veterinarian in the Army right now, and I, I mostly do administrative work. But I volunteered to Jeff to say, Jeff, I'd, I'll, I'll be glad to come out and take a look at their hooves. And I knew that both of those donkeys needed um, their hooves trimmed. But as I said, it has been years since I practiced large animal medicine, uh, and the fact was not lost on those donkeys. Uh, it was a rodeo that day. We, uh, Jeff is very strong, and... And Jeff, he really is capable. He's, he's half my age. I won't tell you what my age is, but he's just roughly a little more than half my age. But he literally took those donkeys and one hand around the neck and the other around the body, and those donkeys drug us around that field while I'm flailing behind, trimming most of the appropriate appendages uh, on those donkeys. But we got the job done, and I tell you, looking back on it, it is one of our favorite shared experiences because we had this adventure that was a struggle. It, it took us probably a half hour, 35 minutes, and it must have looked silly to people driving by on Poffenberger Lane, these two men being drugged by... They're not big donkeys, I hate to say. They're, they're the cruciate donkeys. But it was a wonderful time, and Jeff and I have that as a memory that binds us together uh, as brothers. Our small group has shared the struggle through cancer and death and sickness and through tragic loss and through heartbreak. We've prayed and cared and tended to one another and in doing so have become rooted in relationship to one another. Six years ago, our small group took the first steps of opening our lives and our hearts to one another. And all these years since, we have been at it purposely offering ourselves to each other. Matt and Sally Hearn have led groups that my children have been in. 
Jeff Haynes and I now meet regularly one-on-one -on -one to mentor each other. My wife Felicia does the same with several of the women in the group. And after hearing me talk so often about my accountability relationship with Tim Hampton, Jeff Haynes and David O'Hara now meet together as accountability partners. Sally Hearn tutors my children when they need help in English composition. Jeff Haynes comes to our home at the drop of a hat when we have a health concern about one of our kids. Mike Brubaker and I meet together every two or three weeks and we write down the needs that are in our lives and then we pray daily for one another. Our lives have become deeply and beautifully rooted together. Listen again to a little bit of what Colossians 3 said. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Six years we met and committed to open up our hearts and our lives to one another. And in living that out, we've helped each other to live lives clothed in love, lives more deeply rooted in Christ, and we've fallen in love with each other. Alec may not know what to wear in the morning, but he's clothed himself with love. His life is rich because of community, doing life with others. And the love of God is most manifested when we show this love to each other. Paul said from now on, we do not regard one another from a worldly point of view. We don't put labels on each other, categorize one another. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, that, we do so no longer. You see, there was a time when Paul put a label upon Jesus, imposter Messiah, as if somebody had come to sway the crowds to gain a following. But he went into the temple, of course, and cleaned out the temple. And he went to the cross, and Paul believed that he was suffering from the crimes he had done. He regarded him from a worldly point of view. But there came a moment on the road to Damascus when Jesus revealed himself to Saul, and he said, why do you persecute me, Saul? And Saul became a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The old life is gone. The new has come. The old attitude is gone, and the new attitude has come. The old perspective is gone on life, and the new has come. Gone is the despair, and what's come is the hope. Gone is the hopelessness, and what's come is the forgiveness of God. You see, if anybody's in Christ, if anybody is secure and significant in Christ, he is a new creation. God is doing an incredible work of fashioning a brand new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. And all of this is from God. God is the initiator of this process. God took the first step towards us. Who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation has to do with two people adversarial to one another. Becoming friends. The offense of the offender has been taken or carried away. And now the two adversaries have become friends. 
One of our elders was sent to Vietnam in 1968 as a first lieutenant. His name is Steve Ranning. He was uh, married, just married to Linda. And three weeks after he arrived in this little village called Kuchi, a mortar shell exploded, taking off part of Steve's face and a large part of his head. He went through extensive surgeries and rehab to recover. The Rannies decided for their 40th wedding anniversary to go back to Vietnam to tour the country. And on this very day, he was standing in this village, Kuchi, where the injury took place and the tour guide was speaking. The tour guide happened to be a general of the Viet Cong. And he described how he himself was a member of the Viet Cong, the enemy of the American troops, and he fought in the war against the Americans. And he said, both sides have suffered injuries in this war and losses. He had lost two brothers. And he stood there, the Viet Cong general, with one arm. But he said, we must put the past behind us and become reconciled. And with his one remaining arm, he extended it to Steve Ranney. On that day, Steve had to make a choice. Whether he would stay adversarial with this man, he'll reconcile, or he would make peace. Steve, 40 years after the injury had happened, extended his hand, and the two men became friends. It was a powerful moment for everybody on that, in that group as they saw two people estranged from one another become friends. God has not only reconciled us to himself, but he has given to us this ministry of reconciliation. That someone who is far, far from God can be reconciled back. Someone whose life is steeped with their sins can be forgiven. Someone who is without hope can find hope in Jesus Christ. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And that's what we typically do. We get injured and we count people's sins. And their sins are offensive to us and create a barrier in terms of the relationship. What Christ did was he chose not to count our sins, though he was very capable of counting our sins against us. What Jesus chose to do was to blot out our sins. You see, he carried our sins as far as the east is from the west. He removed our sins from us. You know, if you're in Frederick and you're traveling east, you'll never hit Hagerstown because you're heading east. And if you're heading west toward Hagerstown, you never go toward Baltimore because east and west will never cross, you see. As far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed our sins from us. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God isn't angry with you. God is smiling on you. God is grieved by all the sin that's in this world, but God is not disappointed with you. God doesn't want you running from him anymore. He wants you to run to him. You've been running from God because you really don't know God. The God I know is very gracious and compassionate. And you just take one step toward God, and God will run towards you. God has already taken that first step towards you. God has already moved 
in your direction. And I believe that God is moving in many of your directions. But I believe there's a deeper work that God wants to do in our lives. I believe the cross happened 2,000 years ago historically. But in this very moment, we can come to the cross and meet with Jesus. What we hear from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When they placed the crown upon his head, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When they drove the nails into his hands, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When they drove the nails into his feet, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. When they stripped him of his clothes, he said, Father, forgive them. When the soldiers gambled over his clothes, he said, Father, forgive them. When they offered him wine laced with narcotic, he said, Father, forgive them. The word from the cross is the word you long to hear, forgiveness. And God has given to us this ministry of reconciliation. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon us because he's anointed us to preach this good news to the poor. And we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You see, an ambassador does not come with his own word. He comes from the word of his king. He comes not in his own authority, but he comes in the authority of his king. So God has appointed us to be his ambassadors, to make this appeal to you. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, to be reconciled back to God. There was a time in your life when you were insensitive to what God would say. But maybe there's been a stirring in your own heart of becoming sensitive to the moving of the Spirit. God would have you draw near to himself as he's drawn near to you. God made him who knew no sin. He was impeccable. He was the lamb without spot, without blemish. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, you see. You say, Pastor R, did Jesus become sinful? Did he become a sinner? No, he was the lamb of God onto whom the sins of mankind was laid. He who knew no sin became sin, that our sin could be transferred to him, that God could impute to us his own righteousness. There's two transfers happening, the transfer of our sins toward the lamb, and the righteousness of God being imputed to us. As God's fellow workers, then, we urge you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. And I tell you now, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of your salvation. Every person Jesus called, he called publicly. He said, follow me. And what happened was, when people heard the call of Jesus to follow him, they had a choice to make, a decision to make, a resolution to make, if you will, that would determine the course of action. They could either hear his call to follow him and leave everything else behind, or they could reject the call and continue on their own course. That's why Paul said, those who are perishing, Consider this message to be foolishness. But those who know the power of God are being saved. God would have you come to him. God would have you confess your sin 
and repent and turn from it. God would have you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he took your place upon the cross, and to live your life completely for him. I invite the praise team to come on up. Would you pray with me? Many here, Lord, are in this room who um, years ago made a decision, a resolution. Having heard this glorious gospel, they resolved to follow you with all their hearts. And now they don't live their lives any longer for themselves, but they live their lives for you, Lord. It's a beautiful thing to see love being lived out in community, about people who are no longer thinking only of themselves, but thinking of others. But there are people here, Lord, you're doing a deep work in. You're drawing them to yourself. You tell us that if we lift up the person of Jesus, you will draw all men to yourself. This morning we have tried to look at the cross, to see our beautiful Savior there, with nails through his hands and his feet, with a crown of thorns upon his head, unclothed soldiers gambling beneath the cross over these clothes. We understand that he was unclothed to clothe us with his righteousness. He was stripped down to strip us of our own pride, that we may no longer boast in ourselves, but make our boast in our Savior that we have been loved with a love like that, a love that would go to a cross to lay his life down. And we are humbled, Lord. And so on this very day, Lord, we make our confession. Father, we confess that we have sinned. We are sorry for what we have done. And we repent, Lord, of the sins that we have done. We ask you to change our mind about our sin, not to make us proud of our sin, not to be full of ourselves, but empty of ourself, that we might be full of you. And we choose to believe. We choose to believe that Jesus is our Savior, taking our place upon the cross, bearing the judgment of God, and saying, Father, forgive. Father, we are still beneath the cross. We are still at your feet, hearing your words. Father, forgive us. And may that forgiveness that we experience be extended to others who trespass against us. Deliver us, Lord, by the power of the cross. Fill us with your holy presence. And use us, Lord, as your instruments, your ambassadors in this world to carry a message from our king with the authority of our king to be reconciled to God who loves you. Father, this is our prayer, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please. All, um, all month long, we're going to be at the cross. We're going to be inviting you to that cross to spend some time and linger with Jesus. We invite you also to come. There's a kneeling pad here, an altar, where you can simply come. This is maybe the morning you want to get right with God. You know things aren't quite exactly right, but you just want to get honest with God and just pour out your, your heart. You come, and we will pray with you. This is the safe place. This is a, 
a place where you can just be who you are and admit where you are. So let the Holy Spirit just work in you as we worship together in the last song.